1: Welcome to another edition of the Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem Pittsburgh studios. And now here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon.
2: Welcome. Happy that you're with us for this Wednesday edition of the Ride Home. It's a beautiful spring day, even though it's not spring.
3: It's incredible. Isn't it lovely? I just, I, I just want to get outside.
2: Have you been walking? No. Not yet. Huh. Yesterday? Today?
3: I mean, today I might. Yeah, you have to. I mean, by the time we get home, it's going to be a little dark. It's okay. But
2: get out there. Enjoy it, right? Yeah. Yeah, these next four days, apparently, beautiful, beautiful weather. Uh, I read today that we're 15 inches under the usual precipitation of snow.
3: I believe it. Yeah. I no mean, snow. I, we've. Isn't it crazy? How
2: about the people who make their living, you know, with skiing? Willys. Oh, I know. Uh, uh, right? A friend of ours, a good friend of ours, is a skier, and she's like, there's nothing
3: out there. Right. You can't go. Yeah. I, I'm i not a skier. Neither
2: am I. So, so their loss is our game. Exactly. Sorry, you guys. Yeah. Sorry.
3: Coming up on today's program in the five o'clock hour of the show, um, Pittsburgh showing itself again in the rankings for best football city in America. You knew that coming we'll up, right? That. Yeah, sure. We'll talk about that. Also, the importance of intergenerational discipleship. Are you the kind of person that sticks with people your own age? I think- we tend to gravitate towards people who are on our same station of life because we have a lot in common with them. But I think there's so much benefit to hanging with people who are either considerably older or considerably younger mm-hmm. than you. You're right about that. Um, Dr. Dean Weaver, I th- I'm, I'm guessing he thinks the same thing. He's we'll gonna ta- He's going to talk to us around uh, 525 this afternoon. And also, uh, Frederica Matthews Green, full for Christ. Have you heard that term?
2: I have. Yeah. Uh, so is
3: that a should we aspire to that or should we not aspire no, to I that? No, I think we
2: should aspire to that. I
3: think we shouldn't aspire
2: right. to that. You you think we should not? Yeah. Okay. Well, so we'll see what, what what Frederica has to say.
3: Exactly. Uh, and then coming up in this hour, um, the Meta Snap Snapchat TikTok Twitter thing going before uh, the Senate committee Zuckerberg uh,
2: making an apology. We'll
3: talk about uh, we'll talk with Chris Martin about that um, and kind of what If there's anything that's really going to change in the day to day workings of these social media platforms. And of course, John, I'm going to dip into the most popular Super Bowl snacks 2024. Oh, really?
2: Okay, Mm -hmm. fine. All right, good. We went shopping last night. We have yet to buy. Mm.
3: So you haven't decided. You're still like.
2: Right. Yeah. So it's only Wednesday, right? I know, but this
3: is the time to start making your plans. Yeah.
2: Oh, no, we've decided, but we haven't shopped for that. Oh, but but you know what you're doing? We do. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Terrific. All right. right. Without further ado, though, it is uh, the news that continues to revolve. Kath, please give us the top four at four.
3: It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I'll start with number one, John. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I got some good news, bad news for you. Uh, the PA state police force is seeing increased interest from people who want to be state troopers. But many suburban and rural departments in Western PA are facing the opposite problem, a challenge trying to attract new officers. Citing stats from Murraysville, New Kent and Delmont, police chiefs in today's trip say it's reflective of staffing challenges that local departments are routinely facing and a general decline in people turning to law enforcement as a career. Quote, our biggest issue, says Penn Township Police Chief John Otto, is finding people who want to be police anymore. Hmm. I think that's it.
2: It's a thankless job.
3: It really is. On every level. uh, Chief Tom Seafeld from Murraysville said, quote, it's more dangerous now for police. And in some ways, there's been a drop in respect for police officers. I think it's a multitude of reasons. Plus, you're open to lawsuits and all these other things. Southern Armstrong Regional Police Chief Christopher Febeck said some recruits have expressed concern about the way people in society view the police. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's a lot of conversation uh, and reporting in the article about uh, community engagement how uh, police can change how they're viewed, how the community can change how it's viewed. Um, but a different story, like I said, for the state police, who've seen a bump in cadet applications since August when Governor Josh Shapiro stopped requiring cadet candidates to have completed at least 60 college credits.
2: Well, it's like our friend Jay Warner Wallace says, law and order has to be the cornerstone it of has society. It
3: society, yeah. That's from today's trip. Number two. A U.S. military helicopter carrying five Marines that was due to land in California has gone missing. Search and rescue efforts were being coordinated to find the CH-53E Super Stallion helicopter flying uh, from Clark County, Nevada, to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service and U.S. Border Patrol are helping with the e- with the efforts. The five missing Marines assigned to Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron Three Sixty One. More about that in today's CBS News. Number three, ESPN, Warner Discovery, and Fox Sports announced they will partner to create a massive new streaming network dedicated to sports. This is gigantic. I mean... The service is scheduled to launch in the fall and will include broadcasts from the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and other pro sports leagues. It'll be available via app. Uh, customers will have the option of bundling it with Disney Plus, Hulu, and/or Max. So, cable's just in its waning. Yeah, we're just building cable in another way, right? Yes, we are. And number four, a dreamy image of a polar bear drifting to sleep on a bed carved into an iceberg is the winner of the 2023 wildlife photographer of the year's people's choice award it is an incredible shot mm-hmm. by british amateur photographer Nima sarakani and you have to see it yep. you can uh, read that and uh, the three runners up or the four runners up in today's washington post that's your top four at four outstanding how about that picture oh it's so gorgeous can you believe it I-
2: who would be there to I don't see know. that and shoot she that? She
3: said she was uh, She was off the coast of Norway in some kind of exploratory boat hmm. when she got the shot. And there it was. And the, and the second runner up, which is the happy turtle or whatever, yeah. it's you have to see these. Seriously, go onto the Washington Post mm-hmm. site and check these out. Fantastic. It'll make your day.
2: We'll take a quick break. Come back. Telos. T-E-L-O-S. What is it? We'll find out next on The Right Home, where Pittsburgh's Christian talk to The Right Home. Dorothy Latelle Greco is with us. She's a writer and a photographer who lives outside of Boston, author of Making Marriage Beautiful and, most recently, Marriage in the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges and Joys. But today, Dorothy, welcome. T- telos, you're going to talk to us about this.
3: Yes, I'd love to talk about this. So, uh, first of all, uh, give a definition of the word.
4: Yeah, so it's a Greek word, and what it literally means is fulfillment end, or the end goal of an intentional process. So if you think about calling, is like a similar term for those in Christian circles, but okay. Telos is much more comprehensive. So in Marriage in the Middle, I talk about it as our ultimate destination, And the specific path we take and how we love and serve those who are on the journey with us.
2: I see. So, Dorothy, if it's a Greek word, then people have been thinking, talking, writing about this for a long time.
4: That's a very acute observation, John. I hadn't thought about that before, but I think you're right. Yeah.
3: All right. So if people... now. I can imagine the word used in a different context. So um, I remember when my kids started seventh grade, and I thought this was really silly at the time, um, but they had to go to a... um, uh what do you call it when everyone meets in the auditorium assembly an assembly Assembly, yeah (laughs) they went to an assembly and uh the the administration got up and said okay we need everybody to fill out these forms you're going to fill them out with your teacher and what we're going to assess is what you want to do with your life this is in seventh grade what you want to do with your life so that we can pick the right classes for you so between now and when you graduate from high school you'll have all the classes you need to get into the college you want to get into so that you can get and I mean, no pressure, right? No pressure. It was, you know, I th- I really did. I thought, like, we are way, way, way overthinking this um, in specificity. But I wonder if maybe we're underthinking it when it comes to the larger picture of calling. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to invest in kids in that way um, and have them think about that. Because when you get to middle age, then perhaps it's the first time you've ever thought about it.
4: Wow, you both are coming on with some really smart observations this morning. Thank you. Yeah, I think that you're right, Kathy. There is that sense of, you know, we're focused on these very minute details without looking at the bigger picture, zooming out and saying, well, what is our life to be about? And I think oftentimes in the 20s and 30s, we're just, you know, we're having our kids or we're sewing into our career in such a way that that takes over everything, But obviously there's more, right? There's more to raising children. There's more to life than just simply being successful in a job. So how do we think about what direction do we want our lives lives to take and how are we going to get there? Because it's not as simple as just plugging something into Google Maps and following the voice, right? We have to be um, paying attention to what's happening in the world, paying attention to the needs around us, paying attention to what are we good at, what are we awful at, what has our history been? What is God saying to us, you know, through Scripture, through prayer, through um, people around us we trust? So, yeah, I think that it's very multidimensional. And as as you brought up, Kathy, it often um, we need to recalibrate. Oftentimes that begins to happen in midlife. Mm-hmm.
2: So then, Dorothy, tell us in some ways is... Um... Uh, awareness, right? We have to be aware of who we are, at least some idea of who we are as a person, our gifts, our desires, our wants, Mm -hmm. who we are, uh, especially as believers in Christ uh, to mold all that, to sort of point a direction for us. This is a very difficult thing. I don't think most of us can do this uh, intentionally by ourselves. We need some help. Yeah.
4: I do. I think that we do need help. And whether that's, you know, going to a counselor or a career counselor or just talking about it in the community of people who are around you to sort of ask, what, what do you see that I'm good at? Where do you see that I need to grow? Um, and then also paying attention to the dynamics that are around you, right? What, what is required of you in that season of life? So my sort of calling as a parent really is coming to a close. You know, our youngest son is 24 now. Um, that doesn't mean we stop having a relationship with them, but that active parenting really is, is coming to an end. Um, my work as a photographer, I think, as I'm now in my mid-60s, is also coming to a close just because of the physicality of the job. So there is a sense of having a big-picture calling that I think as Christians we all should have, which, you know, Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And Jesus adds, love your neighbors yourself. Right. So that's a common calling that all of us have. But then the specificity, like we have to figure it out, figure it out in the context of community and the context of our families. Mm
3: -hmm. So, Dorothy, what about uh, people who are listening to the show and think I've never I mean, I've gotten up and gone to work every day, Mm -hmm. uh, but Mm -hmm. I've never thought about calling. I mean, is this something is it is it too late?
4: Absolutely not. No, I think that we are called to be actively involved in service, in loving, in fulfilling God's commandment to bring his kingdom here until the day that he calls us home. So absolutely, it's never too late.
2: I mean, entire industries are built around this, right? I mean, if you would go to a self-help section of the library or a big bookstore, you'd see all these different authors chiming in on, you know, purpose and all those different things. So, I mean, this is, uh, as we said in the beginning, sort of an ancient idea, but it's also uh, in flux all the time as a modern idea. So, Dorothy, talk about yourself. I mean, obviously, you're very intentional about Telos in your life. When did you first start to delve into this idea and breathe life into it?
4: Yeah, I think that I just want to back up for one second. I think that oftentimes the self-help books that are on the um, shelves today and in any bookstore are tend to be a little bit too individualistic. Like, what is my purpose? What is my like, how can I be my authentic self? And I think that there's, you know, there's something to that. But I think that this idea of telos. is is much bigger and much more um, outwardly focused. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a a question of how can I use my gifts, my capacities, the things that I feel passionately about to serve the world around me, to serve my family first, but to serve the world around me. Mm -hmm. So for me, I always, always loved taking photographs. Like from the time that I was six or seven years old, I would have a camera in my hand and be taking pictures. So there was something about that mode of communication that really um, was very freeing to me. And I think that I'm, you know, over the years, I've gotten quite good at it. Um, Underneath of that is a pursuit of beauty and a desire to communicate. So that's sort of like the meta telos Mm, that 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 was expressed in my photography and now is more expressed in my writing. So if we can you know begin to discern what are the common threads in who we are and how we've lived our life, and how might those things serve um, the people around me? How can we love the people around us through our giftedness, I think is a question that is really is is a wonderful question for us to consider, hmm.
3: yeah, so that's a good exercise. What you just did is that I you know, I have the the outworking of my calling has been specific in these ways. The cat um, it's been specific what? for you in photography, but mm-hmm. what how do how do I look at that in a larger sense and see how it can be applied to other specificity and so so you know, I was just talking to somebody today who's contemplating retirement, and mm-hmm. uh, she was saying, yeah, but I don't you know I don't know what I'm gonna do with myself because right. i I feel like my job is what I do it's part of my you definition. know it, it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's not just my definition it's what I'm good at mm. and right. And, uh, you know, I hope she's going to listen to the show because it's, it would be interesting <laughs> taking uh, a, a, stepward, a, ba- a step backward and saying, OK, I'm good at this job, but what does this tell me about my larger gifting that it could be used yeah. in another arena?
4: Yes, absolutely. There was just something on the news this week about a man who had lost his wife and he had recently retired and he was so lonely. And so he began to realize that one of the things he he missed about being married. Was that his wife would hand him a honeydew list and he would, you know, cheerfully fulfill it. Well, he didn't have a wife to ask him to do these things anymore. So he put a message out on Facebook and said, Hey, I am available to do small jobs in your house. Hmm. And he's getting like referrals at a crazy, crazy amount of referrals, mostly single moms, um, widows who don't have a husband or don't have someone who, who can serve them. And he has said that it has transformed his life. Like he's so happy now mm. because he feels like he's engaged with his gift in serving the community around him.
2: Oh, that's fabulous. Okay. So then telos in some ways is a compass for the present and yeah. of course for the future as well. So is yep. there, is there advice that you can give us and our listeners to go, I'm thinking about my own telos. How do I activate this? What do I do?
4: Mm the things that really make you very, very happy, very engaged, or even very angry. Like one of the things that has uh, become part of our life for my husband and I is we minister in a prison, a local maximum security prison. Wow. And that was because as we read about the ways that many, particularly men of color, are unfairly or unjustly incarcerated we thought we can't change the system. We're not lawyers. We're not politicians. But we can go in there and show these men the love of God and help them to remember that they're not forgotten. It's a very small thing. You know, we need to look at it in terms of their need. It's so, so tiny, and we could easily dismiss it and say that's ridiculous. However, because we cared so much about this, it was a way for us to, you know, put feet on it and to say, yeah, we can do this. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. It's three hours a week, you know. Anybody can, I think, should be able to carve out those little spaces where they could say, you know, my neighbor just lost his wife um, in the past year, and I never see him anymore. So why don't we invite him over for dinner on a regular basis and just show him love, let him know that he's cared for. So I think that that paying attention to the things you really that really, really matter to you, that get you mad or that get you excited is maybe one of the first places. And then really looking at what are, what are you good at? You know, I'm not good at using power tools. They scare me to death. (laughs) But um, there are other ways that I can serve people in the community and in my family. Excellent.
3: I love that. That's fabulous. Dorothy, thanks for being here again.
4: Thank you for having me. I always enjoy this conversation. Yeah, we do as well. Always thoughtful.
3: Dorothy Littell Greco has been with us. Check out her books. Uh, She's the author of Making Marriage Beautiful and most recently Marriage in the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges and Joys.
2: We'll take a quick break. Come back. Uh, Before you know it, the Super Bowl's here. It's Sunday. Here it is Wednesday. So are your snacks in order? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about this? Are you activating this? Mm -hmm. Are you going to sit down and watch the game? Is it just going to be a microwave popcorn? Are you going to step it up a little bit? Don't let it
3: be microwave popcorn. No, it shouldn't be.
2: We'll find out next. I was reading today about the average price uh, for one Super Bowl ticket. Take a guess.
3: The average price? Yeah,
2: for this Sunday's game in Las Vegas. Uh, I what's bet ticket this price? is going
3: to shock me. I'm going to say $1,200.
2: <laughs> $9,850. On. Because it's Las Vegas. $9,850. The front row seat, $34,862. You're
3: be choking me. Okay, i got to say something. You know I love the NFL, and you know I'm totally geeked about the Super Bowl. That's the most overpriced sporting event ever.
2: And this year particularly because it's Las Vegas. The stadium is smaller, and they don't have regular seats. There's club seats. There's tables. There's all these different varieties of things. And Vegas being Vegas, it's going to cost you a lot more to fly in, a lot more to eat, a lot more for your hotel room, and, of course— the ticket price. That's Everything is scarce.
3: Outrageous.
2: So there's a lot to be said of having some microwave popcorn no, you on should your never... couch nope. for Super Bowl.
3: No. Staying home for the Super Bowl, yes. No excuse for microwave popcorn. Uh, you Regular popcorn is so much better. Times 10. It's times 10 better yeah. and really not any harder to make. No. Piece of cake. Yeah. Actually. Some really microwave is. popcorn should be abolished. But let me just say again if you said you have free tickets to the Super Bowl, oh, yeah. I wouldn't go. Why? I have no interest in going. Oh,
2: ever? I'd love no. to go. No, nope. to experience it at least nope. once. Of course. Don't it's not, care. It's on my bucket list. Don't care. Really?
3: Never. I would. I. I have no interest in going.
2: Steelers. I mean, if you
3: said, if you said, hey Kathy, would you rather go to the Final Four in college basketball or the, or Super, the Bowl? Super Bowl? Oh, Final Four any day. That, really? What if somebody said you could, uh, you could go to Augusta? to go to the masters oh my gosh okay, i yes. would do that or the world series sure love to oh
2: i'd go to the world Been sn- to the world series
3: yeah you shut up twice <laughs> all right since we're talking about super bowl snacks yeah <coughs> sorry i'm choking because yep. it's, Mike so, it's popcorn it's, stuck in your exactly. throat exactly so what's just going on that little bit in the back of my throat
2: there we go take a little drink and
3: looking for today the best super bowl snacks now mm. i shouldn't say the best the most popular Super Bowl snacks for this year. Now, this is based on people Googling recipes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's no like scientific, it's not like the Pew Research Center called everybody and said, hey, Lex, what are you you making for the Super Bowl? It's not that. Okay, but I do have a list here and they're not in order. Okay. So these
2: are the top. People are going to make these or they're searching to make these thinking, oh, yeah. There's a top
3: 12 in America.
2: Okay. Okay. Run them down. Are you ready? Yep cheese curds. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> no interest.
3: Okay, Lex, have you had cheese curds? I love cheese. So uh, do I. No, I, don't. I love them Good. so much. I love I especially love like the dill pickle favored no, ones. Thanks. yeah. I think they're absolutely delicious. Okay. Ham and cheese sliders. That's fine. Vegan chili. No. Home potato fries. I'm not even sure what that means. What I'll is try it. home potato fries? But people are googling that sure, in some parts sure. of the country. Pulled pork, yeah, that's fine. White chicken chili. Oh yes, yours. Oh, that's what I that's what I made the other night. Most Boy, excellent. that was hot. Oh, was I had so it good. last night. Mm. Oh, I made it pretty hot. Delicious. Um, is not white chicken chili delicious? It sure is. Seven layer dip. Oh yeah, I love that. Undoubtedly. Stuff. Guac.
2: Mm-hmm. One hundred percent.
3: Plain sliders. So like your burger slider. Fine. Or okay. Regular chili.
2: Yes. 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 Yes.
3: Hummus. Okay. Buffalo chicken dip. Yes. Okay. Those are the top twelve in really? America for this year. No wings. There were no wings on the list. Get out of here. How can there not be wings? Well, I here's the thing. Wings are really big here in in Pittsburgh. But I not the rest of the country? But I, this was a this was a nationwide thing. There really? were no wings on the list.
2: Really? You can have a slider.
3: And sliders and ham and cheese sliders Same both thing. made the list, yeah. but no wings. I was surprised by that.
2: Chili? Yes. Yeah. okay, in any variety. Well, vegan chili, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, but chili for the Super Bowl, excellent.
3: Lex, did you hear my list? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And do you have any commentary on it? Not really. I think all of those sounds pretty tasty, not yep. going to lie. Okay, so you, there's nothing that you look at and say, I, I'm not interested in that. No, not really. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm a big foodie, so yeah. okay, right? How about okay. your
2: guac? You make excellent guac. Thank you. You do. Thank
3: you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. The thing about guac is you have to make it and eat it. It's oh, not you like you can't let it sit. You can't let it sit. You can't make it ahead. No, no. no. You know what I mean? It just has to be like Fresh. a. Yeah. A, a thing. So I might make guac. Hey. Now I know you said you didn't want to reveal what you've your family's decided for the party. Yeah, but oh, it's basic. It, is it on this list? Uh, no. No, Did it's not. Did you go for wings? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you going to order out?
2: Uh, no, we're going to make. Really? With our own sauce.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm excited to hear how that goes. And
2: a big plate of nachos.
3: Because we had those nachos of last we weekend, did,
2: yeah. and they were so good. Go. This is Super Bowl. Step it up a little bit, please. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. What are we talking about? Oh, Meta, Snapchat, oh. Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg, before Congress, apologizing, and the families holding up their photos of their children. I mean, what an image that's next in the right home.
3: We're back with Chris Martin. Chris is the author of Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media, and his newest book called The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. Chris, welcome back.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. Always
2: a pleasure, Chris. Okay, so um, it's been a while since you've joined us. A lot has happened. But I think one of the exclamation points, which we follow, and so do you, is that there was a recent hearing before Congress that uh, brought in all these sort of tech uh, wizards, right? The people who are behind... Uh, TikTok and Facebook, Meta, if you want to call it, Snapchat, all that. And they were grilled. I mean, people, you know, these guys were sitting there and people were saying, there is blood on your hands. And then uh, people in the, you know, in the audience, so to speak, holding up photographs of their young children who had committed suicide because of cyberbullying and whatnot. This was a major event. Uh, Give us your take on this.
5: Yeah, um, tech CEOs, social media CEOs specifically have been called before congressional hearings a a handful of times in the last handful of years, Uh, really since probably the late 2010s. They have come to give an account for uh, the kinds of content hosted on their platforms, the kind of content uh, banned from their platforms, etc. A lot of this kind of began, it seems, following the 2016 election and, and all of the... Um, meddling that was done by international organizations during that on on Facebook there was tons of grilling over the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all of that um, and there's been a lot of it since then more and more uh, a lot of the congressional hearings have been catered toward how these platforms are affecting individuals specifically young people less about you know matters of global intrigue or election interference and things like that which I think is good I think I think sometimes even though these platforms have had some wide ranging political effects and some some uh, international meddling that should be of concern frankly i think a lot more concerning is how these platforms are hurting the, the mental health of young people and, and people just generally so uh this past week the, the last week of january five of these ceos uh discord which is like a chat service uh snapchat meta tiktok and x formerly twitter all appeared before this congressional hearing to kind of answer for a lot of um online child exploitation and and other mental health afflictions uh, that young people have endured on these platforms. And there are a lot, yeah, a lot of, you know, highlight moments, I guess you could say in the past, I and plenty of others have been frustrated by how politicians have seemed to call these um, social media CEOs to Washington, DC ostensibly for things like teen mental health or other big issues only to have them, uh, have the politicians, you know, uh, swim around and roll around in the mud of why did you ban my per- my particular kind of political bent, or why why did you do this or that? You know, I have people on my staff who say this, and it just seems sort of petty a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And I've been frustrated of like why why are we going after them about these issues when there are so many bigger things uh, going on? And but this time, I think it was the strongest sort of congressional pat down that we've seen uh, of these CEOs. And and there were some really powerful moments. A couple that you've already kind of mentioned. We had Mark Zuckerberg, the the leader of the biggest social media platform in the world, stand up, turn around, and publicly apologize for how um, these parents of these young people have had their families torn apart. Uh, Very careful to kind of not take responsibility uh but but also kind of a an interesting moment to have him actually do that when he was pressured to do so by senator holly and so it was what's what's always good about this is that the there tends to be a pretty bipartisan pressuring of these ceos mm-hmm. um but the question is is will it actually do anything and yeah. that's always the uh the bugaboo when it comes to these there's a lot of bluster a lot of talk that was more encouraging than ever but then two days later facebook reached an all-time high market cap and right. is more valuable than it's ever been. So <laughs> um, so it's kind of like what what will happen and, and will anything happen following all of this?
3: Right, and that's the question. I know that you've uh, also followed the uh, Wall Street Journal articles that have come out over the past year and a half probably, and they're kind of a, a deep dive into uh, issues related to what's shown by Meta, what's magnified by Meta, yeah. what's, what algorithms feed into uh, – individuals' feeds and how that all works. And basically the end of every article I've read about this, Chris, is that the people who are writing the article say, okay, you know, like... I've talked to so-and-so at Meta. I've talked to so-and-so at X. And I've talked to so-and-so. And and they're like, no, no, no. We have all these, you know, uh, teams. And we have, you know, assembled these leaders who are going to figure out what – But the bottom line is if I log in and say, you know, I want to have sex with seven-year-old boys, then I'm going to be hooked up with a group of people who want to do the same thing.
5: That's right. And I think that's like – a lot of you know. I want to believe the best of these organizations that they do care and that they're that they are. Like I don't think they're lying about putting these task force task forces together and and putting these groups together and having these rules in place. No doubt, I, I think they are doing those things. Um, however, I think a lot of it is so that they can say they're doing those things mm-hmm. because, frankly, at it, delivering people, as I've said on this program and and in my writings and all kinds of places before. At the heart of algorithm-based social media platforms, which is basically all we have at this point, is that social media algorithms and the timelines that we scroll on every day are designed at their core to deliver us more deeply into our desires, not deliver us from our desires. Mm. And so long as humans have sinful desires and there are platforms that are designed at the core of their business model. To because they need to be designed this way to keep our eyeballs, which is how they make money, at the core of their business model is to deliver us more deeply into our desires. No task force is going to keep that core experience from happening short of a task force that dismantles recommendation engine algorithms. So any task force is is going to be going up against, like no task force can basically... um, Halt the core of the business model. They might try to deal with some of the fallout of what happens when that when the when the business works. Okay, we've delivered people who are into extremist content of some very of some kind, whether it's you know uh, whether it's criminal or just politically extreme or whatever else. All right, now that we've done that, because that's kind of at the core of our business, how do we react to that? Well, we've got a task force that can try to provide resources for people to get out of those extremist tendencies or those self-harm tendencies, but they're not doing anything to um, disrupt that core business model of deliver people more deeply into what they want, no matter how destructive it might be. Right.
2: And so social media, right, essentially, whether it's you or our children, this is just a deal with the devil. And so it requires us, parents or just, you know, the regular people to police themselves to take care of our own matters that are before us, and not rely on the big tech companies to do it for us. That's what we need to do.
5: That's right. I think. I think no matter. Even though, again, I believe that they have formed some of these teams and task forces and policies and all of that. Um, however, I at the same time, while I believe them in in them saying those things, I also pretty strongly believe that these platforms care more about making money than they do about the welfare of their users that has been like tell me like show me what you do more than tell me what you say like i want to see what you're doing more than what you're saying and what they're doing aligns a lot more with caring more about profits than people even though they talk about how much they care about people and so i think we need to believe the best and trust that they're doing these things but also again like you said john take into our own hands our own wellness and recognize that Even though we care a lot about these platforms, these platforms don't care a lot about us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to have that perspective.
3: No, I think you're right. I I think it was the last time maybe we talked to you, Chris, you were talking about the fact that, you know, Meta can say whatever they want, but your kid is worth $127 million to Instagram.
5: Yeah, that's right. The the average lifetime value of a 13-year-old is $270. And over the course of you take tens of millions of 13-year-olds using these platforms or however many there are, Uh, that that turns into a lot of money. You know, it's like, oh, man, yeah, my teenager is definitely worth more than two hundred seventy dollars to me. Uh, But then, you know, when you're Facebook and you've got a million like millions, if not tens of millions of those people, um, they're worth a lot of money. And so and the only the only way they're worth that much money is by keeping their eyeballs for as long as possible. And the reality is a lot of 13 year olds are going to keep their eyeballs on something like Instagram, um, consuming content that is Less than helpful for their mental, physical or otherwise spiritual health. Um, And so I think uh, it's important for parents or other caregivers, teachers, mentors of any kind, uh, specifically as we think about young people, to do what we can to take matters into our own hands and not trust these ambiguous talked about task forces that should be Mm. protecting the people we love, we should just probably take care of that ourselves as best we can. I
2: mean, the greatest indictment of all that is, you know, these guys, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or whomever, they don't allow their kids on social media because they know, right. Don't eat this poison that I create for you.
5: Yeah. It's always fascinating. You know, I, I'm, friends with mark zuckerberg on facebook whether you can follow his page where he you know he tries to post to facebook to use the own tool what's really fascinating to me is he'll sometimes post pictures of his kids like of his family mm-hmm. they're never facing the camera which i think is like wise like i we don't right. post pictures of our kids on social media for very obvious reasons as you can imagine given my interests um but i think it's it's fascinating that his kids sometimes are in pictures but but you never see their faces which i i think yeah. A part of that is he's Mark Zuckerberg. You know, he, he has a certain level of prominence. But frankly, I think he he probably knows as well as anybody that it's probably not smart for anybody to have a minor have, you know, have their face on these platforms uh, it could become a problem really fast.
3: Oh, but the irony of it is just screaming at you, isn't it? I mean, yeah, obviously, Mm -hmm. he's Mark Zuckerberg. And so more people know him and are going to, you know, and because of his wealth and celebrity, perhaps his children are more at risk. But the point is that everybody's kids are at risk. Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah, right.
2: All that to say, uh, Chris Martin, uh, as our listeners are uh, chiming in right now, where can they find you on social (laughs) media?
5: (laughs) Yeah, uh, you won't really. I, I've actually deactivated my Twitter, so my Twitter's not really there. I have an Instagram, but it's private. So if I don't know you, I'm probably not accepting you. And I don't ever post there anyway. It's just pictures of my dog from time to time. And uh, I have a Facebook, but it's just for kind of family and friends. So you can't really find me anywhere, even though I have accounts. Yeah. Uh, but if if anybody wants to read some stuff I write, I, I write at FYI, It's a newsletter formerly known as Terms of Service, which was the name of my first book. Uh, but these days I write about social media I write about all kinds of stuff that's interesting to me so if you want to read any of that you can find it there
2: very nice terrific always a pleasure thank you Chris yeah thanks for having me thank you online Chris Martin FYI you want to find out more he follows social media closely so we don't have to as much as we mm, we just like to try to stay away hey stay with us we're underway here we're going to talk about of all things jumping from social media to a shipwreck that's next on The Ride Home
3: We're all facing something. Whether it's just the everyday stresses of life intentions or the realities of navigating a hard season of life, if we're honest, sometimes we just feel disconnected from God. Well, Lisa Turkhurst understands this struggle. You might be familiar with Lisa and her writings, and she's creating something special, a few nights to provide a sacred space for women to simply show up, to soak in truth, to be reminded that there is hope beyond what you're facing now. It sounds like an incredible one-night event. Event. It's full of biblical wisdom, practical teaching, and powerful worship that could be just what you need. So grab a friend and you can join all of us. It's March 15th at Amplify Church in Pittsburgh. It's called the You're Going to Make It Tour, and I'm really looking forward to it. We've got two tickets that right now we are going to give away at 800-320-8255. That's 800-320-8255. Um, or what, four tickets? Two pairs. Two pairs. Mm -hmm. How about that? Okay, so we've got four tickets. Two pairs to give away. I'm going to say let's do caller six and caller 10, Lex. Caller six and caller 10 at 800-320-8255. That's coming up March 15th at Amplified Church in Pittsburgh.
2: Very nice. Uh, Speaking of events and things to do, let us remind you one more time that next Friday evening is the Word FM Valentine's Dinner Cruise. Very nice. com. Very nice. Um, I don't think that sums it up.
3: I, mean, I think it could be the most fun thing you've done month of February. All right. I mean it's early. It's That's <laughs> what I'm I mean, saying, John. It's
2: only the 7th, So <laughs> okay. I mean
3: so you got some time
2: not. to fill it up, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. I wonder I wish we had a menu. Will pierogies be on the menu once again? Uh, right. I
3: think I have some input into Do the you know? menu. Okay. All right, good.
2: So join us, WordFM com the Valentine's dinner cruise fairly that's 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 my phrase, fairly inexpensive. And mm-hmm. and truly it is for a nice night out on the rivers. The yeah, Allegheny, the Monongahela, the Ohio of the city sparkles in the evening. And look, considering how the weather's been, I mean, holy smokes. being nice to just cruise along. We'll be there as well with the fun and perhaps some frivolity. <laughs> but but join us, won't you please? WordFM.com. All mm-hmm. right? Looking forward Two to it. Two things that are going on right now. All right. Um, have you heard the story about this... Um, uh, the shipwreck in uh, Newfoundland? No. Super cool. Um, so, uh, in Newfoundland, of course, th- this is, you know, in the upper Can- uh, Canada provinces. Yeah. They are used to uh, shipwrecks, right? I mean, the, the area around has been just, uh, in an article in the New York Times, hundreds and hundreds of shipwrecks since the 1800s. Huh. And so, this little town, uh, the town is called cape ray on the island of newfoundland and uh this shipwreck came ashore in this small community community of about 250 people residents have posed for pictures with parts of the wooden ship and a, a resident wooden ship yep wow resident uh, and so somebody who lives close by Pushed a drone up in the air and could see an overhead shot of this. I mean, it's super cool. It's fairly large, and that's the unusual thing. One, that it's mostly intact, and the size of it as well. So they're going to go in and send an expedition out into the water. Can you imagine how cold the water is no. in Canada and no. Newfoundland? Um, they're going to go and take a look at it. Uh, possible that the ship washed ashore because of Hurricane Fiona, which was a, a Category 4 storm. It destroyed about 100 homes along the Newfoundland coast back in uh, September of 2022. And they're going to look at this ship and see how it's held together.
3: So how old do they think it is?
2: So they're not sure. So they know it's because it's wooden and the size somewhere, this is a large you know, window, somewhere in the 1800s. Whatever that might mean. So where's it been all this time? Who knows?
3: And why did, why did it wash it, in now?
2: Because of the hurricane, I'm sure, the It kind the of stirred waters, things up, you're stirred saying. Stirred it up I and then pushed it close to shore. And you see it from this drone shot, it is very close to shore. I mean, you know, you have to swim out to it if you, you know, that it's not like, you know. But not I'm very not, far. No, exactly. There have been a, a dozen recorded shipwrecks in the Cape Ray area in the last three centuries. And then in the wider area, as I said, hundreds and hundreds, Um, So nothing does know about it other than we're going to take a peek. Isn't that cool? Wow. Yep. You know, in the past, this is weird. In Canada, the Canadian government has buried shipwrecks in the sand so that you can be preserved if somebody wants to dig them up and do some research at a later time. But they're not going to do this with this because it's so close to, to the land.
3: What, you mean they take them out of the water? and They, they would...
2: come up and they bury them and then just kind of seal them in the sand. And then later on, teams of researchers are able to go in and dig down deeper and look at them.
3: That's fascinating.
2: Isn't it, though? What the sea holds. I know. Besides blue plastic bags.
3: Exactly. Listen, I was putting some uh, garbage out last night. I'm sickened by the amount of plastic in my garbage. Yes, I, real, I mean, obviously, I'm trying to recycle whatever I can. But don't you think we have these beautiful seas, and what the heck are we doing to them?
1: Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem, Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons.
2: Hey, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along this Wednesday, February 7th edition of The Ride Home. It is it is so beautiful.
3: Oh, my goodness. Okay,
2: we're sealed into this building here. There are no windows that open. Right. Please, could we have a window that opens?
3: I mean, it's, this day. it is
2: truly incredible. Mid 50s here, sunny. We are getting spoiled. Middle of here.
3: February? Yeah. I mean, what are we doing?
2: Yep. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I was like so dour. We were like this extended, protracted gray.
3: It's hard to keep up with the with the rises and falls. You gotta be honest.
2: It's a lot going on there. Yeah, just, you know it is what it is. Uh-huh. Uh, th- this is the uh, live afternoon John and Kathy Wright home show. Yes, it. That's is. what people call that. <laughs>
3: that. People call it all sorts of At things. At least internally, that's, here. right? That's, that's one do. of the things it's called.
2: Okay, um, even though we are not anywhere near the Super Bowl as far as uh, participating this year, Pittsburgh once again ranked as the best city for football fans six consecutive years. Is that year. right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, this is from Wallet Hub. They uh, list their uh, best and worst cities for football fans. Of course, we're intensely loyal. Uh, WalletHub is a personal uh, metric. They use 21 different uh, metrics to arrive at naming Pittsburgh the best city for their football. Of course, um, the Super Bowl wins, our six Super Bowl wins, play a large part in this. Also, a top-tier ranking for Accra Stadium. I don't know about
6: that.
2: 68,000-person mm-hmm. uh, capacity makes it easy for Sealer fans and the Panthers college football fans to attend. Hub also credited Pittsburgh for having some of the most engaged football fans I believe in that. the country. In terms of social media likes and followers per capita, and by ticket revenue and social media engagement. No doubt about that.
3: Remember when, I think it was Boomer Esiason... When he visited for yeah. uh, Monday Night Football several years ago, yeah. and he or maybe it was Phil Sims, I don't remember which one, made a comment about how uh, the women are so knowledgeable about football in Pittsburgh. He was trying to be nice. Yeah. And then it turned into this whole fire thing about – Firestorm. Right, right. It was a compliment. Right. That everybody took as an insult.
2: Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are followed be, – uh, behind us is Green Bay, Los yeah. Angeles, Green, Boston. Wait. Let me
3: just say again. We're followed by Green Bay? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to I just wanted to put that bold face.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Green Bay, uh uh-huh. Los Angeles, Boston. Los Angeles? Yep.
3: Okay. I don't know,
2: New York, Miami, New Orleans. Uh San Francisco and Kansas City, they placed ninth and tenth respectively.
3: So they don't deserve to go to the Super Bowl. Well, <laughs> I'm the, kidding. Yes, they do. It's just a little joke.
2: Uh metrics likes the team's performance, mm, stadium capacity, attendance, franchise value. Uh, compared, 249 cities uh, with at least one NFL or college football team, and we're number one.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. I love that.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what do you think? Are you following along, you know, the Steeler machinations of the offseason? You know, we're bringing in a new offensive yes. line. Yes. This, uh, a new offensive leaving. coordinator. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's very, it's like a little game of chess here, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. And it's... um and since we don't know exactly how the inner workings of the steelers not at all. are no one does um, we're not sure how much. Where the where a lot of the decision making happens, whether it happens on the coaching end or the ownership end, um, I, I know combination. I know Mr. Two. Rooney said that uh, Mike Tomlin was going to be have the sole discretion for the hiring of the offensive coordinator, mm-hmm. which he did. Um, and so I don't know. This is a wait and see.
2: But now there's talk about a new quarterback coming into town. Right. Have yeah, you seen
3: that? yeah. Because we not None of us know whether Mason Rudolph is going to sign with the Steelers, or
2: Kenny Pickett will
3: be a starter. Right. Uh, I mean, they the Steelers want Kenny Pickett to be the starter. There's no question about that.
6: Can he? And
3: be? if I was Mason Rudolph, I don't know if I'd want to stay with the Steelers based on how. Right. You know, the, so, the, the only reason that he got to a level of prominence this year is because he was the last man choice. Standing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you
2: think if you're Mason Rudolph's agent, you're out there fielding offers if there are such things as offers. Oh, yeah. There, right? Oh, for
3: sure. There'll right. be offers for Mason Rudolph. Well. I think I, mean, I don't think they're going to be starting offers but I think they'll be good backup offers and I'm mean,
2: considering, you know, he was talking about getting getting out of football last year. Right, he was now gonna he's got a big payday coming. to apply for his
3: commercial real estate license. Right.
2: So, good for him. Yeah.
3: Oh, well, I'm I'm thrilled for him. Showed up and Or maybe the Steelers will pony up and good. pay a lot for Mason Rudolph. But how much do you want to pay for your backup quarterback? Right, right. Or the next question is of course has Kenny Pickett really shown enough no. in almost three seasons to be your number one guy?
2: That would be no. no. Or then do you go out on the free agent market and bring somebody in to compete, right? Seriously compete. Right, exactly. Who would like want a, to Russell, come here like a Russell
3: Wilson or something like
2: that. Yeah, all that.
3: Okay, let me bring up something about that's food-related again coming food. up. And I, I'm going to insert these as the shows go on up until Friday. Okay. Um, how do you feel about deviled tater tots? It's a combination of a deviled egg... And a tater tot.
2: I don't like a tater tot. Do you?
3: I'm not. Well, to be honest with you, no. However, however, I will tell you this, though, Um, for this particular recipe, you make your own. Yeah. Okay. So it's not it doesn't have the fake, you know, Ida. right. The frozen taste. So you'd be making your own. This is not going to be a quick thing to make. But I think I mean, I love a deviled egg.
2: Yeah, I like a deviled egg.
3: And so it's you're you're kind of putting the filling that you would put into the hard-boiled egg. Mm-hmm. You're you're putting it in a pastry bag and you're kind of squeezing it on top of the tater top. Okay. What do you think? Lex, do you have a feeling about that? Well, I can't stand deviled eggs. What? Oh, yeah, really? I'm not
4: a big fan. And then I think a <laughs> Kathy's face, a tater tot is like the worst kind of potato Mm. variety. I think so. So Two
2: strikes against you, right there.
3: Yeah, it's O for two. I don't think Mm. I would do it. Okay, Okay. but
2: a deviled egg, very nice.
3: I love a deviled egg, egg. and I love a crispy potato. Yeah, yeah, me too. And so, if I could combine those two,
2: maybe so. I feel like
3: that'd be pretty good. Mm -hmm. All right.
2: Okay, we'll take a quick break. We do come back. Uh, Dean Weaver is going to join us, and uh, we're talking about intergenerational discipleship. That's a fancy word for us, just, you know, reaching forward and back to the people that we know and love, or not. So stay tuned for that. It's a ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. If you're fortunate to have a church that has a bunch of old people and a bunch of young people and then people in the middle... That's the best, Mm -hmm. isn't it? It is. And I think probably in America, the church is the only place that that happens on a regular basis. You think? It's a good point. Yeah. All right. Because people are so in their own tribes, in their own generation, their own separate little space. Reverend Dr. Dean Weaver is back with us. He's the stated clerk of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, co-founder, former president of EduNations. Dean, welcome back, friend. How are you doing?
1: Thank you very much, guys. Good to hear from you again. How are things in the Berg?
3: Well, they're fine. I mean, we're just talking about Super Bowl snacks. And of course, we're going to ask you what you are projecting uh, to eat on Sunday before the end of our segment.
2: And the good news is, Dean, we're on a run here. I think this is
1: day three of sunshine. Wow. mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'm going to get on a plane and leave Florida and come back. Oh, stop it. Yeah. How, How warm is it where you are now? Uh, we're actually in kind of a cold stretch right now, John. It's 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 in the low sixties right now.
3: Well, I mean, so
2: suffering down there. Huh? Better put a sweater on, Dean.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right, Dean. Listen, when uh, when my husband and I got married, uh, we joined a small group at our church, and we kind of joined it because it was like uh, kind of available, like there was a slot for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was uh, the two of us and we were in our 20s. And then there was a couple that was in their 30s, a couple that was in their 40s. 50s and 60s hmm. so we had like one representative of each decade yeah, yeah. and at the beginning because we were you know 24 and dumb we were like well what like we're just going to go to this because we have to it turned out to be one of the greatest blessings of our marriage because we saw and talked to people who were kind of one stage above us you know in life and two then stages, two stages yeah. and three you know and we've all uh, maintained a friendship after all this time at but Again, if there wouldn't have been an open space, we would not have chosen that for ourselves.
1: Yeah. Well, I think having um, that choice, helping you to to end in that better place is a gift because we don't naturally go there. There's a principle a lot of the church growth movement was built on back in the 1980s called the homogeneous principle, which is kind of the birds of a feather flock together idea. And that is to say, you know, if you're in your twenties and you're newly married, you want to be around other people in their twenties and newly married. If you've got, you know, young kids, you want to be around other people with young kids. And while there's a lot of truth to that and a lot of peer support to that, there's also, you're missing out on the richness of people who are either have gone ahead of you and have something to offer by way of wisdom and experience or people behind you who may benefit from your wisdom and experience. And there's something about being able to receive from those who are ahead of you and to be able to offer to those who are following behind that actually contributes to our discipleship. Uh, I don't think we were ever intended to really be discipling only with our peers because it really is very limiting in terms of the kind of feedback and input that we're going to get. And we've become um, very kind of one-sided. We only ever see the world from people who see the world the way we see the world. We only ever uh, have experiences from people who have the same kind of experiences as us. And I think we're diminished for that. And I think one of the beautiful benefits, and, and actually I was listening to a podcast this morning, um that that there is a real sticky factor in faith that in this generation that's radically deconstructing their faith there's actually a long-term perseverance stickiness to people who have been discipled across generations hmm. Interesting. um yeah. and so i think i think it's it seems to be that the you know it, it's like when i would come into my house at home in pittsburgh and my when my 93 year old dad was living with us and you had my dad, you had you know Beth and I, you had my kids, and then the emergence of my grandkids. And you had four generations in there. It was hysterical. Cool. I mean, it was just a riot, but it, was, it wasn't it was just fun and funny. You know, there's my daughter sitting down with my father asking for dating advice. Hmm. Um, yeah, wow, well, that's great. Know. Yeah, so I, I think there's a richness there, and I, I think you're exactly right, Kathy. The church is one of the few places where... Um, that seems should be the natural order of things, and if people will fight that kind of natural urge to kind of, you know, flock with other people who are just like them, the same stage of life, and really kind of go, go to that place of being with others, they're going to find not only is it a richer experience, and they're really going to enjoy the friendships. But I think their discipleship will be stronger. Yeah,
2: Dean. Okay. Uh, oh, wait. No. Why wait, is wait, that? Wait, 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 yeah, wait but there's that word. So discipleship. People who are listening right now. Some people might not be Christians. It's oh, a yeah. bit of a Christianese word. Define discipleship.
1: Well, a disciple is a student. You know, John Mark Comer calls it an apprentice. Um, apprenticing, practicing the way of Jesus. It's simply a a Christian way, a a biblical way of saying, uh, someone who is a student or follower of a teacher, or in the case of Jesus, a rabbi. And that person is not only committed to their body of teaching, in other words, they they kind of believe what that teacher believes, but they're committed to a lifestyle and a way of doing things, the way that teacher was committed to doing things. Today we might call it coaching mentoring things along those lines, but okay. if you think about like uh the Super Bowl coming up and all these coaches, they oftentimes want to talk about their coaching tree you know they want to yes. say you know who who came under this person, this person well that's discipleship. You know, uh, the guy in San Francisco, uh, Shanahan, he comes from a long coaching tree. Mm -hmm. And if you trace it all back, you'll see similarities in the way he's learned to approach the game that came from the coaches he worked under and worked for and worked with. And now he's in a position where he's the Super Bowl coach. And someday they'll be talking about his coaching tree. So it's just this idea that people, as we're in these positions of, of whether it's football or being a pastor or you know just being a you know a teacher in a local school or a nurse working on a particular floor the younger generation is looking at you whether you know it or not the older generation is watching you whether you know it or not and if you connect with them with some degree of intentionality you'll find that all of us to some degree are coaches mentors whether we intend to or not and, and why not be intentional about it? Uh, Jesus was super intentional about that with his followers, and, and a whole bunch of people followed him. Men followed him, women followed him, tax collectors, uh, you know, people you know who had a, kind of a, a questionable background in history, uh, fishermen, um, they all followed him, sat at his feet, and learned not only what he believed, but started to pattern their lives after him, and that's really what a disciple is.
3: Excellent. Hmm. Dean Weaver is with us. Um, Dean, I want to ask you about, uh, you said that there's a staying power that comes uh, with people being discipled uh, and hanging out with people of different ages in the church. Why do you think that is? What's the mechanism?
1: Well, it, it goes in two directions, Kathy. One is that as you are connected to somebody older than you, you gain access to someone who has wisdom practical experience in dealing with what you've dealt with, who can offer you insight um, and you realize, Oh my gosh, first of all, I'm not the first person that's walked this path mm. before. Um, and and that alone will give you the encouragement to continue to go forward. When you realize you, this isn't a unique situation or a mm. unique problem, somebody else has walked this path, figured it out. And Oh, by the way, they're there to walk with me now. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that with, has a great staying power, but there's also something that happens going in the other direction, Kathy, and that is when you start to give away what you've learned, that actually catalyzes deeper discipleship, because if you don't, it's kind of like the Dead Sea. You know, the water comes in, but it doesn't go out. Um, You have to have some place where the things that you've learned and grown and believed are being given away, or else your faith stagnates and, and dies. And so there's something about teaching someone else or giving it away to someone else as much as receiving from someone else. That, that process, that multigenerational process actually seems to be by design for a vibrant discipled faith.
2: Interesting. So is discipleship similar or the same as evangelism?
1: Well, I mean, evangelism is an aspect of discipleship. I mean, when you look at, for example, the Great Commission, John, he doesn't say, go out and evangelize. He says, go out and make disciples. Yes. Well, the, the first step in discipleship is, hey, John, would you like to follow this guy, Jesus? And you go, I don't know if I want to follow this guy, Jesus. Do I? And he's like, well, yeah, I think you do. And here's why. That's evangelism, right? You're sharing the good news of who Jesus is so that that person now feels this compelling desire to want to follow them, right? But discipleship goes beyond just simply uh, evangelism. It goes to a whole life. It goes to a worldview. It goes to the way of thinking and feeling and believing about yourself and the world around you. But here's the problem. Most disciples forget to do evangelism. And it's just like that water in the Red Sea thing I was saying earlier, every disciple, not, not every disciple is an evangelist, right? I mean, that's a gift. If you've ever been around an evangelist, you know what I'm talking yep, about. Yep. But, but every one of us, while we may not be evangelists, we do have the responsibility of discipling others, which means at some point we have to share our faith with them so they can become a disciple, right? And so every one of us is called to be a witness, even if we're not gifted with evangelism, because one of the stunning observations when you look at the, the the Great Commission is when Jesus said, go and make disciples, who is he talking to? Us. Well, well yeah, disciples. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was going, he was talking to disciples about making disciples. He was talking to regular people, normal people. You know, the people he was talking to are people just like us, to your point, John. Yeah. And so, so by extension, he is saying to you and me, it wasn't just for the professional clergy class or the religious elite and few. It was to all of the people who would follow the way of Jesus, who would take his, his beliefs, his, his thinking, and his behavior, that is his lifestyle, and say, I am going to be a student, a follower, an apprentice of that rabbi, Jesus, and I'm going to pattern my life and thinking and behavior after him. All of us who are called to do that are called to have, reach out to others to do that. And so there's people who have done that for us, and there's people we will do that for, and that's a multi-generational discipleship faith. Beautiful.
3: So Reverend Dr. Dean Weaver, uh, Dean, before you shoot out of here, I want to ask you about the Super Bowl coming up Sunday. First off, uh, are you watching? Are, are you watching? Of course. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Of course. I mean, I didn't yes. Baseline. I I just, yeah, baseline. You're right. Uh, next, uh, do you have a team that you're rooting for?
1: Well, I have to, you know, I could be political about this, Kathy, because the EPC has churches in the Bay Area and we have churches in Kansas City, mm. but but your audience, thankfully, bleeds black and gold. So That's I'm going to qualify this with, with three things. Number one, I will be wearing my brand new Alex Highsmith jersey oh, that, nice. was, that I got for Christmas. Okay. So I'll be, I'll be wearing that. Number two, Um, I will be eating something with french fries on top of it, whatever it is.
3: (laughs) Okay.
1: Good job. All right. right. Okay. And and number three, I will be rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs, and here's why. Mm. All right. You ready? Yeah. I cannot tolerate the idea. that the San Francisco 49ers would have as many Super Bowls as
3: us. Thank you. John feels the same way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. You don't have any attachment to thinking that it would be great to see Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy, end up with it. Go from Mr. Irrelevant to Super Bowl champ?
1: Yeah, I like that. I love that story, and I like Christian McCafferty, and I like like the program. I just—black and gold trumps
3: that. Yeah, you can't. All right.
1: Yeah, I mean, my loyalty— to the black and gold precludes me from letting my heart influence my feelings. And all that kind of stuff. You got to stay true. You mm-hmm. got to stay true, and true means you know I, I don't like the idea that somebody else is even tied with us for as many Super Bowls. Thank you. So the idea that somebody else would approach that, no, we can't have that.
2: That is very
1: clear-eyed, mm-hmm. Dean.
2: Thank yeah, you so I, much. I
3: do appreciate your consistency mm-hmm. on that.
1: <laughs> well, guys, um, I think. If that truth is passed on to somebody else, then I have done my job wow. of stealer That's intergenerational That's discipleship. Excellent.
2: The Reverend
3: Dr. Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, also co-founder and former president of Edunation. Thank you, Dean. So we need to take a break. When we come back, does make sense? Does
2: what make sense?
3: Does this make sense?
2: Does what make sense?
3: Parallel parking. Mm -hmm. Now, when you pass your driver's test in the state of Pennsylvania, you have to prove that you can do it. Mm -hmm. So you take your kid over there and you practice parallel parking conservatively Mm -hmm. 185,000 times. Okay, And then you pass your driver's test and then you... Most people never do it again.
2: What do you mean most people do, never do it again?
3: I think most people never do it again.
2: Are you kidding me? If you live in the city, you do it all the time. Okay, so. Parallel parking is an art form of the highest order. And if you have not passed that down to your progeny, you have failed miserably. I'm with you. It is a simple equation it in is. your mind mm-hmm. that you can figure out. When I see these ads for these cars now that parallel park for you, I scoff. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I believe they hold their right. hands up like uh, mm-hmm. it's the downfall of society mm-hmm. to see that. I agree. And I feel bad for people who can't master that. I don't but understand. It
3: seems like in their minds, it's an unclimbable mountain, whereas it's really just it's it's kind of s- simple geometry space time I think so. continuum.
2: And not to be snooty about it. No, but. It makes
3: perfect sense. Of course it does. I'm totally with you. aren't you pleased with yourself? Yes, of course I am. Yes. Uh And if you don't parallel park, you're not able to visit a lot of terrific places. Got that right.
2: Makes perfect sense. Makes all the sense in the world. All right. Does this make sense? Purell. (laughs) The bottle of Purell that you see. Look, I think we have one out there on the counter. When you see that.
3: It says welcome, doesn't it? Oh. When you see that what that big bottle. I mean, does, it, does that make sense at all? I hate it so much. Thank you. I despise it. What? When I walk into a location and I see first off the bat the Purell bottle, yeah. I think, really? Oh. Boy, that's a great way to make me as a visitor feel like I'm glad I came.
2: However well-intentioned it may I'm be. I'm sure it's well-intentioned. Right? It's oh.
3: the worst. Yeah. I hate it.
2: Purell is like a pandemic sort of
3: it is. high Re- point. Relic.
2: Right. You need right like, There it is. Yeah. I mean... <sighs>
3: I just, I seriously, and when I see the industrial size bottle, hmm. it makes me more angry. No, how
2: about the little tiny bottle?
3: The tiny bottle I'm okay with. No,
2: no, that's even worse. No, it's I, a slap in your, <laughs> like you're putting it in your pocket. It's a slap in the face.
3: No, I'm okay with the little oh. bottle. It's the big bottle that you see, like, when you come to somebody's church. They're mm. like, hey, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> squirt, squirt. I mean, it's, I I
2: doesn't make sense. I
3: can't stand it. The it worst thing sense. is
2: to parallel park while you have Purell in your hands. Yeah.
3: You, first the of all, worst, you should never do that it. That makes no just, sense uh, at
2: all. It's just saying. Have you ever heard the expression, a fool for Christ? Yes. What do you think about this?
3: Well, I never knew what it meant, to be honest with you. But
2: you heard someone say, I'm a fool for, or that person's a fool for Christ.
3: Right. And, or
2: historically. Yeah, they have been fools but here's for Christ. the
3: thing it was never said it was never said in a positive way. Oh, it's a negative. It was like, oh, that person's being a fool for Christ. Really? Like they don't know what they're talking a about. Derogatory.
2: Frederica Matthews Green is back with us. She's the author of The Jesus Prayer, the ancient desert prayer that tunes the heart to God. She's been a regular guest of ours over the many, many years we've done the show. Frederica, a fool for Christ. Is that a negative or a positive? <laughs>
6: Well, in the Orthodox Church, it's very much a positive. It's a um, it's a kind of spiritual di- um, discipline. It's a kind of spiritual discipline, but a very difficult one. And people who undertake to be a fool for Christ um, usually they're quite sane and intelligent, but they decide to act as fools. And they will just live on the streets of the city. They will um, only take food from poor people. And usually if a um, poor person gives them food, he would insult him when when he gave it. They're doing everything they can to be seen as useless, worthless people. Really? And this is for the sake of humility.
2: Okay. So is there... Uh, there has to be. Uh, are there fool for Christ saints or some historical model that you know of?
6: Oh yes, there are many saints um, for for Christ. Many saints that were there. Fool- yeah. <laughs> yes, there are many saints that were fools for Christ huh. all through history. Um, one I remember is uh, Andrew, the fool for Christ, who was in Constantinople in the nine hundreds. And he, um, he lived on the street. Um, he could, if he saw a person, he could see inside himself what that person's besetting sin was. And he might dance around and around. And when he got up close to this person, he would whisper it in, in his ear. Oh. So sometimes he was used by God um, to chastise people in a way and make them realize that God knows what you're doing. So they're... There are many strange things that uh, Fools for Christ might do, but they're so beloved, very much beloved in the Orthodox Church.
2: So it's a deep commitment, a, pu- a purity in some way. Is that fair to say?
6: Yes, yes. It's, um, it is a very deep commitment, and it's um, very dangerous. You know, it, it's exposing you to the, to the element, to the hatred of others that may, might just want you to get out of the way there will be no respect for you until some people figure out what you're doing and when they do the admiration for the person and affection for them really begins to grow now this person still might not want you to thank him for anything but um you you realize what what you've got there what's going on
2: Okay, so in the midst of this, I, I'm looking across the table here, and Kath is making a face like, "What are you talking about, Frederica?" Kath, chime in here.
3: Well, so I, I, so uh, yeah. I'm, so I'm wonder, I, I guess I don't get it. I mean, I understand the role of the fool in Shakespeare, so to speak. So sure. I mean, I, I, so I get a portion of it, but I'm wondering, and I, I can imagine how it would put you in a position of empathy with others uh, who are poor and downtrodden and forgotten. I definitely see that part. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure how it's advancing the gospel to do that.
6: Yes, I guess that when when people have done this, it's usually in a community that is already Christian, so they oh. know, to some oh. extent, they, they know how to take it. They know how to interpret oh. what the person is doing. Interesting. So like in Constantinople in the 900s, it was um, very thoroughly Christian at that point. So the things he did could be understood. One one of the stories he told was that one night he was freezing to death so He went to sleep on top of a pile of dung, where there were dogs, and the dogs were keeping him a little bit warm. And he said over the course of that night, he spent two weeks in heaven, and he saw saw everything about the pearly gates and the roads. He saw Jesus. Um, He said, the Lord Jesus spoke three words to me, and they filled me with joy. But I'm not gonna say what they were. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So um, yeah, yeah. Um it's lively. It reminds you to honor those who are um who who are diminished in some way, those who mm. are poor, those who have a, a mental illness. And um the fact that this person might know your secret sins also that brought to them um not only affection but respect as someone who really could see what God was doing and and hear the thoughts of his heart
2: This is fascinating. Frederica Matthews Green is with us. She's the author of the Jesus Prayer. So Frederica let's take this a little step further because in (laughs) my communication with you you said in December you of all things were on a film set where there was a (laughs) Fool for Christ movie? Tell us about this
6: (laughs) Yes, yes, it's a it, it promises to be a wonderful movie. The title is El Tonto Por Cristo, which is Spanish for The Fool for Christ. El Tonto Por Cristo. And I should give a you know little uh, plug here that there is a GoFundMe for this. They're trying very fast to finish it in time for the Cannes Film Festival. Interesting. So if you can give a little bit of money there, that would be great. The Fool for Christ in this story is an abbot of a very small monastery on the Texas coast. So you see the the waves rolling in. Um, It's a a beautiful setting. And um, it's it's a situation in which the abbot, who is the Fool for Christ in the story, well, there are responsibilities an abbot has, things that he has to do. But there's always this little extra twist. And everything that this Fool for Christ in the movie does is taken from history. It's something that a Fool for Christ did, and it was recorded and and kept in memory. So this looks like a terrific movie. I was able to fly to Dallas and see a part of it as it was being filmed. And and how did
2: that happen? Why were you invited onto the set?
6: (laughs) You know, I I don't really know. (laughs) There was a... uh, let's guess it was in August, there was a Zoom call of, um, you know, maybe 12 people. I don't know why I was included, but it was a Zoom call to talk about the movie, which at that point had not finished being filmed. Hmm. And uh, when I was signing off from the Zoom call, I said, if you need a granny, (laughs) just give me a call. (laughs) And and they started thinking about that, and they did give me a little role where I just – Stand in the church, you know, next to the bishop, oh, that's and pretend cool. we 're having worship, so yeah it 's going to be in black and white, it looks very um artsy, you know, yeah, and uh yeah, everything about it is kind of gives you the feeling of those deeply respected films like Susan Kane, that carry so much weight, so hopefully that'll be out um by this summer and We'll all be able to see what a fool for Christ does, um, as represented in this film.
2: Wow, I love this so much. I mean, it's an um, unusual—I guess you call it a ministry, right? In some ways, Mm -hmm. would a fool for Christ—it's kind of a back. I'm looking at it sort of a backwards thing. Are they? Would they be an evangelist?
6: Yes, yes, in many cases. And, um, of course, in those lands, in Constantinople and in Russia, there was lots of invasions by Huns, by Tatars, by, um, you know, uh, coming from the other direction, from Germany, and they had to stand against this often and fight. So it was important for the Fools for Christ to be there to remind them of the profound quality of what's going on. And the the danger of war and how that should sharpen our attention to God, realizing that we really have hope only in him. There's a story about, I forget what his name is, but it was one of the Fools for Christ. And as the Tsar was visiting their camp, he walked up to, to the Tsar, who was seated on his horse, grabbed a hold of the bridle and said, you will not return you should not go to this battle because you and your sons will be killed. And the czar said, off with his head. Oh, not right now. When I come back, we'll, we'll have him executed. And so three or four days later, the czar's servants came up to him and said, well, the czar is on his way back. He's going to be really angry at you. And the fool said, I have smelled the stink of his bones being burned three days ago. And that was true. The um, czar and his sons had been killed, and then the bodies burned. And somehow this fool for Christ knew that or could sense it. And so he took quite a risk, of course, in telling the czar what to do. But uh, it was um, just an example of the clairvoyance that fools for Christ sometimes have. Sometimes they have a great resonance with, with nature and with animals. And one of the much-beloved saints, St. Seraphim of Sarov, had a bear. He lived out in the woods, and he had a bear that would come to him. And uh, one day, two nuns came to visit him there in the woods. And as they were talking, this big bear lumbered up. And Seraphim said, what are you doing, Misha? Which is a nickname for Mike. What are you doing, Misha? Why are you scaring my daughters here? Go make yourself useful. Why don't you find some honey? Bring us back some honey. And the woman knew not what to make of this. And I, like a half hour later, the bear came back, and he had a big chunk of honey wrapped up in leaves, and brought it and gave it to Saint Seraphim. <laughs> That's the the kind of thing we all wish yeah. <laughs> yes. we could.
3: Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: Well, Frederica, all of this is fascinating. This is something that I I knew nothing about. And I I think, despite Cass' skepticism, I I might be coming around. Yeah, very interesting. (laughs) Frederica, you're always a a very um, powerful guest for me. You reveal Mm -hmm. things that we never thought before. So, thank you for your presence here.
6: (laughs) Thank you. I always enjoy being with you.
2: Truly, the pleasure is ours. Frederica Matthews Green, she's the author of The Jesus Prayer. The ancient desert prayer that tunes the heart to God. We'll take a quick break. Come back. Fifty places to eat and drink before you die. That's next in the ride home. There's a website that we follow, Atlas Obscura, and uh, it is what what the name says. It's around the world with some really obscure wonderful things. It's Mm -hmm. highly recommended you check that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have an article today 50 places to eat and drink before you die and they're around the world. These are crazy places. And they're just brief little descriptions with a photo of each thing
3: yeah you got something yeah yeah Hanson Snowblizz snowballs, which is in New Orleans it's the first patented shaved ice machine heralded, which of course we know a snowy wonderland of ice treats. but this is a favorite New Orleans summer shack. Hmm. I have been to New Orleans and I was there in the late summer and did not see it, but it i mean it's 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 a it's a snow cone, looks but for delish. some reason it looks super delicious, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: okay. This is from Cedar Creek, Texas. The pecan pie vending machine, which is a 24 hour vending machine restocked daily with homemade full sized pecan pies. <laughs>
3: There has to be a pretty big opening for the pie. Is the pie going to come crashing down? Cedar Creek. That's a lot of pecan pie. Yeah, how about that? Okay, what about the... I love this idea. Now, when I think of food coming out of a vending machine, of course, I think of terrible food. Yeah. Food that's not going to taste good, but it's also just filled with preservatives and terrible for you. Well, this is... Putting that assumption on its head, Ithaca, New York, the Cornell Apple Vending Machine. What? For $1, if you're a student at Cornell, you can snag a freshly picked apple from the vending machine grown in the university orchards.
2: Oh, that's super cool. Isn't it? And there's Whoa. a little
3: label on what kind of apple it is and Real. where it was grown for a buck.
2: A buck for a fresh apple. That is really that's awesome. That's excellent. How about this? This is uh, from Diana Beach in Kenya, Ali Barber's Cave Restaurant drink and dine in a coral cave that's at least 120,000 years (gasps) old. What is that? That is super cool. Mm -hmm.
3: Wow. Okay, here's one that the setting is everything. Ben Ababa, it's in Ethiopia, and it's a restaurant that is perched on the edge of this like incredibly dangerous cliff next to what they're calling a medieval holy city. Mm. But the setting of it, I mean, you could eat, you could bring, I mean, I I think the food is secondary. I mean, this is an absolutely incredible location. Nice. How about this? Newport Beach, California? I've been there.
2: The frozen banana stand. Oh,
3: I have... That's one of my favorite places.
2: Try the frozen treat that inspired Arrested Development's right. famous banana stand. Uh, Dad's original frozen banana.
3: It's absolutely really? delicious. Interesting. You can get milk or dark, and you can get it with nuts or without.
2: Interesting. Okay, I know this place and I've been here. This is in New York, New York, the Lexington Candy Shop, the mm-hmm. oldest family run luncheonette in New York, last renovated in 1948 still serves food and drinks the old-fashioned way, and they've got a nice neon sign. Very
3: oh, nice. I mm-hmm. like that. It's like an old-time sign. Yep, lovely. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, this one is in St. Louis. It's called Bull Rush. It's a, a restaurant that celebrates the culinary tradition of the Ozark Mountains oh. before 1870. Yeah. <clears throat> now, yeah. that's going to be stuff that you can shoot and don't have to refrigerate. Really? Has to, I mean, what, what were they eating in the Ozarks before 1870? Hmm. Right?
2: I guess, yeah. Pretty. Okay, speaking of vending machines, in Kansas City, Kansas, the Jones Barbecue Vending Machine, why settle for barbecue chips when you can get actual barbecue? It's a barbecue sandwich from a machine. All
3: right. I would never do that.
2: You never know how long has it been in there.
3: Exactly. Right? That's what I'm thinking. Okay, the last one is the Trash. It's a German-style coffee and cake in Munich, Germany. I love that. Show me the way.
2: 50 places to eat and drink before you die in Atlas Obscura. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group.